Welcome to the Three Martini Lunch. Grab a stool next to Greg Corumbus of Radio America and Jim Garrity of National Review. Three Martinis coming up. Hey, we're really glad you're with us on this Monday edition of the Three Martini Lunch, the President's Day edition. We've got good, bad, and crazy martinis for conservatives, and we're sponsored by Theragun, so all of that is good. First of all, Jim, happy President's Day to you, or as I prefer to call it, Washington's birthday, with which I believe is the official federal holiday, or at least it used to be. And for those of you wishing to uh, extol the virtues of Millard Fillmore and Rutherford B. Hayes and Benjamin Harrison, anybody except Woodrow Wilson, you're probably going to be okay today. But, uh, you know, the February presidents, Washington, Lincoln, Reagan, William Henry Harrison, it's really where it's at. So I'm sure you're celebrating in your own special way today, right, Jim? You know what I call today, Greg? Monday. (laughs) Monday, yes. All right, let's talk about our good martini today. And it's a follow-up to one of our, it's good news that the bad news is coming out martinis from Friday. And this is uh, related to Governor Andrew Cuomo and the revelation, to virtually no one's surprise, uh, that they undercounted and even delayed reporting at all the number of nursing home-related COVID deaths. Uh, This is the Free Beacon. A bipartisan group of New York lawmakers is calling for Governor Andrew Cuomo to be stripped of his emergency powers as fallout from his handling of the COVID-19 pandemic. The call comes less than a day after the New York Post reported that a Cuomo aide admitted the administration suppressed information about nursing home deaths in the state. The aide said the administration froze out of fear that federal prosecutors would use the information in an investigation into Cuomo's handling of the pandemic. Fourteen Democratic state senators joined Republicans in calling for Cuomo's emergency powers, which the state legislature granted to him last March, to be rescinded. Uh, The split in the state Senate in New York is 43 Democrats, 20 Republicans. So if you flip 14, that makes it 34 in favor of taking away his emergency powers and just 29 in favor of keeping them. I don't know what the story is in the state house. Very quickly, here's the statement issued by the 14 state Senate Democrats. Without exception, the New York state constitution calls for the legislature to govern as a co-equal branch of government. While COVID-19 has tested the limits of our people and state and early during the pandemic required the government to restructure decision-making to render rapid necessary public health judgments, it is clear that the expanded emergency powers granted to the governor are no longer appropriate. While the executive's authority to issue directives is due to expire on April 30th, we urge the Senate to advance and adopt a repeal as expeditiously as possible. So, Jim, it's not often you get a lot of people from the same party going after the executive, but uh, I think the the facts here are extraordinarily damning and uh, good on these Democrats to to put even more pressure on Cuomo, at least to this level. I know a lot of people want uh, anything up to impeachment, censure, whatever, so they, they would probably see this as a slap on the wrist, but at least they're moving in the right direction here. Yeah, it's, it's a much-needed step. Now, I, want to, I feel the obligation to disclose to our listeners that when Greg suggested this story, I looked at the uh, the you know figures for how many people are in the New York State Senate instead. But Greg, that's not a majority. And Greg corrected me to point out that yes, that would be a majority in the Senate, and that would be enough to pass this. Uh, so one, good for you, Greg. Two, <laughs> I, I kind of now the question is, what's wrong with those other state senators? Why do they look at this? And not only not see a reason to impeach or any formal censure or anything like that, they don't even think this is a reason to take back the, the governor's emergency powers. And what have we learned from the history of democracy going back? We saw this, you know, not just going back many uh, or last century, 
you can even look in a galaxy far, far away about what happens when you give one leader emergency powers. They tend to not give it back. That emergencies <laughs> should be emergencies. They should not be the sort of things that go on forever. And this is, you know, almost every dictatorship and military coup and every other authoritarian regime claims these emergency powers because of some sort of terrible crisis, sometimes genuine, sometimes contrived. And then they say, we'll give them back later, we promise. And then they never quite get around to doing it. Now, we don't necessarily have that particular situation. But the idea that New York State is still in a emergency situation that requires these far-reaching powers of the governor is ridiculous. Um, I have pointed out how New York State has done among the worst. You can argue New Jersey is a little bit worse uh, in one or two categories. But on a per capita basis, per million residents basis, number of cases, number of deaths, New York is, is, you know, if not the very worst, then right near the top. Um, and what New York is seeing is the same thing we're seeing all across the country. Cases are down 40% over the last two weeks. That's really good news. So a little bit of that's probably the vaccination, but we're not that far into that process. I think it's more that we're leaving winter. I think it's more than you had um, the Thanksgiving get-togethers. You had the Christmas get-togethers. People were more likely to start interacting with each other. You know, as you get into winter, people have fewer times where they're exchanging in the same house. They're they're in you know in indoor settings. Uh, the air is circulated, and they and I'm spreading it more. Well, you know, for a good chunk of December, New York was in the you know uh, you know heading up to the thirteen thousand new cases a day, fourteen thousand new cases a day, even up to like you know twenty thousand cases back on January fifteenth. But it's been declining pretty steadily there ever since then. We're now in the you know the eight thousand eight thousand and nine thousand cases a day. What do you need to see to say, hey, the governor doesn't need these emergency powers anymore? Because it's not saying all these things that are being done can't be, you can't keep those policies in place. It simply means the governor does not get to do all these things by himself. He has to start consulting with the state legislature again. And now that somebody on the governor's staff has come out and said, we deliberately withheld public health data from you because we thought if we did, the U.S. Department of Justice would investigate us. What more do you need to hear, Democratic state legislators? What are you waiting for to say, no, that's it. You don't get these privileges anymore. This was only for a special case of emergency. You don't get to keep them anymore. It's back to us because we can't trust you to handle these powers responsibly. What do you need to see, New York State Democratic legislators? Yeah, exactly. And we've got a majority in the state Senate headed in that direction. We'll see if the House agrees at some point, hopefully soon. But yeah, I mean, it's a double whammy, like you just said. They aren't needed anymore, and you can't trust Andrew Cuomo to uh, to continue with them. And so good on those New York Democrats, at least 14 of them, for admitting that up front. But uh, we'll see if that's the extent of the consequences for Governor Cuomo's action. Well, if you're tense about your governor lying about the number of people killed by a stupid nursing home policy, or you're going to be tense because of the next two martinis that we're going to be talking about here, Theragun is definitely the way to go. Don't let the stress of daily life weigh on your body. Whether you're an elite athlete or someone like us, just trying to make it through the day tension-free, Theragun can definitely help. You know, Greg, how many podcasts will give you reasons to feel tense <laughs> and then give you a way to not feel so tense afterwards? Theragun is the handheld percussive therapy device that releases your deepest muscle tension using a scientifically calibrated combo of depth, speed, and power, and it is as quiet as an electric toothbrush. The Gen 4 Theragun doesn't just feel good, it gets to the source of the pain by releasing tension using Theragun's signature percussive therapy, which goes 60% deeper than vibration alone. Whether you want to treat your muscle tension from working out or because of an injury or just the stress of everyday life, 
there is no substitute for the Theragun Gen 4. The OLED screen and design make you feel like you're holding something from the future. Just go to their site and check it out, and the Theragun app learns from your behaviors and actually suggests guided routines. You know, I, I joked about the future. That's pretty cool when the, uh, the Theragun can actually uh, calculate based on where you've used it on what muscle groups and, and then create uh, a, uh, a therapy routine just for you. Uh, my wife and I love the Theragun. We use it on the feet, quads, uh, back, definitely. Even on the neck. you got to be a little careful on the neck, but definitely there as well. Theragun is trusted by 250 professional sports teams like Real Madrid and elite athletes like Paul George, DeAndre Hopkins, Maria Sharapova, hundreds of thousands of customers, and yes, me. So try Theragun for 30 days, starting at only $199. Go to theragun.com slash martini right now and get your Gen 4 Theragun today. That's theragun.com slash martini. Again, theragun.com slash martini. All right, Jim, let's talk about another COVID-related issue. A lot of discussion about this issue today, but uh, this one could be in the crazy. It's just mind-boggling. AP, the Biden administration's plan to open 100 vaccination sites by the end of the month was initially embraced by governors and health officials who considered it a much-needed lifeline to get more Americans inoculated against the coronavirus. But reality has quickly set in. Some are hesitating to take the offer, at least for now, saying they don't need more places to administer doses, they just need more doses. Eager to protect more people against the coronavirus, health officials in Oklahoma, for example, jumped at the chance to add large, federally supported vaccination sites. They wanted them in Oklahoma City, Tulsa, and a third mid-sized city, Lawton, thinking the extra help would allow them to send more doses to smaller communities that had yet to benefit. Those plans are now on hold after the state learned that the sites would not come with additional vaccines. Instead, the doses would have to be pulled from the state's existing allocation, and the three sites alone might have used more than half of Oklahoma's vaccine supply. So instead of helping to solve the problem, Jim, it's making the problem worse by divvying it up into even more sites. Yeah, people have been reading both the Morning Jolt and my corner posts on this know that this is something I'm borderline obsessed with these days, um, in part because I, I feel like what we're being told about how much vaccine is available, like there's a giant gap between how much vaccine we're told has been distributed to the states and how much is ending up in people's arms. It's gotten down, I think, to about, it started out at 20 million. At one point, it was up to 21 million. And now I think we're in the neighborhood of... Eh, you know, we've used 76% of the available amount that's out there. Um, you're looking at something like, you know, 17, 18 million that's still there. It's been sent out. It's just not being used. It's not getting into people's arms. And so, you know, like maybe a million or two of that can be reporting delays. But a lot of that, and then some of that might be people, that, the stuff that they're holding for a second dose for people who have already received the first dose. Biden administration and the CDC have said, we don't want you to do that. We want you to keep putting shots in people's arms, but maybe that's it. But that's still a huge amount. And the, the, now that Biden, you know, there was this whole lot of hype about this. Uh, Slotnick or whatever it was, and all these guys, they're very excited about this. But then all of a sudden you realize we are promising you we're going to build a giant site. We're going to have tents. We're going to have people to put it, the shots into the arms. The only thing we're not going to give you is the vaccines. Well, it's kind of important for the vaccine process. It's almost this absurd. If you had like giant amounts of supply and not enough people to administer it, 
then it would make sense. Okay, that's when you would need something like this. Um, but in a whole bunch of states, they're getting the CVSs and the Walgreens. They call the retail pharmacy program on, on board. Walmart is doing it. If you can do a flu vaccine, chances are you can do this vaccine. I don't imagine it's going to require enormous amounts of retraining of medical personnel. That put, get, you know, if, if you take the needle, you put it in the shot in the arm. Maybe it requires a little bit of uh, proper you know, training and storage and making sure it's kept at a certain temperature or something like that. But by and large, this is not a giant logistical hurdle. No, it seems like the problem is that we just don't have enough vaccine. And the uh, Biden administration said they're addressing this. They said they were going to start giving places a greater assurance about how much was going to be arriving. You know, I, I still don't understand this stuff because back when Operation Warm Speed was launching, they said every one of these is going to have a GPS in it. This shouldn't be lost. It should not be missing anywhere. It should not be sitting in it. You know, they should be able to account for every single crate of every single dose that they've ever produced here. Pfizer and, and uh, Moderna know where they where they got shipped. It gets to the states, and it, it's like it disappears. All right? It does not make any sense. I'll give you just one example of how just bizarre this is, and how, how the, the explanations are so vague. Uh, San Diego County in California um, was supposed to. They said there's a delivery of the Moderna vaccines did not arrive in San Diego on Friday as planned. So now they've had to delay a whole bunch. And this is kind of like you know, this is kind of a domino effect. Like you're you're lining up your appointments you know, with expectations the doses will be there. If it doesn't arrive on a certain day, then everybody you're expected to do that day has to get pushed back to another day. So it says uh, appointments scheduled for Friday and Saturday will be honored at the site, but may depend on availability. And they had to close the super vaccinations uh, site in downtown San Diego has to be closed Sunday, Monday, and Tuesday. Now, nobody's got any explanations to why this shipment didn't get there, but it's like, you know, I, I'm just baffled by this. There's really no good explanation for this. And they had months and months to prepare this. So dear Biden administration, you know, it's nice to have more people to distribute. It's nice to have all the tents. But if you don't have more vaccines, nothing's going to happen. So now the question is, where are the vaccines and why are there anywhere from 17 million to 21 million doses that nobody can account for? That's the big problem here. And then, oh, by the way, I'm great. It's, you know, they may have missed this late last week. They announced, oh, we've bought... Um, more than 600 million doses, so we can now do two doses to everybody, uh, all adults, by the end of July. Look, I'm not going to complain about that. All of the things being equal, that's good. But I'm not really you know, sure how much, like, if it arrives in, in May and in June, like, you know, by, by hopefully by April, you get to the point where everybody who wants it can get it. The real big th issue we're trying to think of is, like, we, right now we need a lot more vaccine now, right, for, for the old people, for the immunocompromised people. Like, that's the, the ticking clock. That's the race we're up against. Uh, young, healthy people, 99% chance they're going to be just fine. So what we really need is to get more vaccines out there. We have this warehouse somewhere in East Baltimore where they've got tens of millions of doses of the Johnson & Johnson vaccine and the AstraZeneca slash Oxford vaccine. Johnson & Johnson vaccine is supposed to approve by the end of the month. I don't know what the CDC is doing until then. Or the Food Drug Administration is doing until then. You know, you'd like to think they're doing this as fast as possible. I've heard from some doctors who say this can be done in 24 to 48 hours. Maybe that's too fast. I don't know. Does it require three weeks? Because that's what it's taken right now. And as for AstraZeneca, they haven't even submitted to the, F the FDA yet. So we don't know when they're, you know, it'll take minimum three weeks after that application. But we've got the doses there. They're sitting there on the shelf, ready to go. But we can't do that. And rant, Greg. <laughs> well, clearly the answer here is more bureaucracy. So that's what uh, the Biden administration is trying to put in here. Uh, They've done such a terrific job. 
Hey guys, it's Mock and Daisy from Chicks on the Right. We're excited to tell you about our podcast, the Mock and Daisy Common Sense Cast. From discussing topics like cancel culture, what's happening to our new generations, crises in our nation, and even some high-profile interviews, each week we touch on subjects that matter to us and matter to you. And we're not afraid to tell you how it is. So tune in every week to hear us talk about the things or even just get a good laugh. To find out more, go to our website, chicksontheright.com, or start listening on the Apple Podcast app, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to leave a comment or review and subscribe. All right, Jim. Well, I'll let you rest momentarily from your rant because I feel like you've got another one uh, winding up for our crazy martini here. Uh, it was less than two weeks ago. It was earlier this month in February when the CDC director, Dr. Rochelle Walensky, essentially said, hey, we got to get the kids back in school. We need to do it so quickly. It doesn't even require that all teachers be vaccinated, even though in many places teachers are being pushed to the front of the line as part of the effort to get everybody back into school. We should have known when Jen Psaki at the White House briefing a day or two later said, you know what, Dr. Walensky, talking for herself, we don't have the guidance yet, so we don't have official administration policy. She doesn't speak for the administration. Well, now Dr. Walensky uh, is out speaking for the administration, and you can tell she's tortured as she's doing so. Uh, both she and Fauci have said that uh, we need to get the kids back in school, and now both of them are towing the administration line, which is essentially bowing and kowtowing to the teachers' unions. A uh, couple of quick clips, first of all, on Walensky. We'll get to Fauci later. But Walensky, uh, and Jim has more on her past on this issue uh, as recently as last summer. But here she is with Jake Tapper on State of the Union, with Tapper asking a pretty basic question and Walensky offering nothing but word salad because she knows that the administration's policy doesn't make any sense. And there are a lot of people out there watching who think, like, I thought the science said we should open the schools as long as we take those safety steps. We're taking the safety steps and we're not opening the schools. Yeah, it's so there are numerous um, uh, research studies that have demonstrated that if with universal masking and uh, six feet of distancing and, um, you know, de-densification of the classrooms, that it's possible to get schools back safely um, with all of that happening. Ninety two percent of people in those studies were masked. Um, we have other data that was just published in CDC's MMWR that demonstrate that somewhere around 60 percent of students are reliably masking. That has to be universal. So we have work to do, especially when the country remains in the red zone of high community transmission. As that transmission comes down, we'll be able to relax some of these measures. But the real point is to make sure that the science is consistent with our guidance, which is consistent to say, until we can ensure that we have all those measures happening, that there would the schools wouldn't be safe. And here's Tapper's classic response. I'm just really confused. It seems to me like you're saying the schools are safe to open as long as everybody takes these, these steps, but not everybody's taking these steps. Therefore, we're not going to open the schools. Is it, do I have that right? So, Jim, less than two weeks ago, she says we can go back. The teachers don't even need to be uh, vaccinated. Now she says that schools that are in red zones because of concerns about community spread can't go back. And as Tapper pointed out, 99% of school kids are in the red zone. So everything has done a complete 180 here from what Walensky said just a couple of weeks ago because the administration doesn't want to defy the teachers' union. Yeah, and, and Greg, let's observe that all across the country, a whole bunch of private schools open. And, and I have not seen a post-apocalyptic landscape in which the bodies are carried out every day. You know, the, the private schools are managing to do this. It's a complete question. Why is it so much harder for the public schools to do this? Now, by the way, for the last year, we've been repeatedly warned over and over again, the worst thing that could happen 
would be if politicians or political interest groups started interfering and contradicting the assessment of public health experts. That, by the way, is exactly what happened when Jen Psaki said, oh, Walensky at CDC. That's just her speaking in her personal capacity. That's not really, you know, as if Walensky has some personal opinion that's going to be completely different from what the CDC recommendation. No, no. When you're the CDC director and you're speaking at the White House, that's your official opinion. There is no secret other opinion that's hiding behind the curtain somewhere. But then the second thing was, and this is, this is a story that, like, is just absolutely mind-boggling. One of the things in the recommendation is try to have kids six, or, you know, recommend having kids six feet apart. Well, for, you know, it's getting the number of kids in a classroom. That's tough. Uh, for having the kids in a hallway, that's tough. You know, that, well, you know, by the way, you probably have noticed in your ordinary life, dear listeners, you go to the supermarket, people don't always stay six feet away from you. If you're really unlucky, they'll be wearing two masks on their chin and still bump into you. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where, you know, in, inside buildings, somebody's going to come within six feet of you and you just hope that your mask works and their mask works and you try to keep, minimize that amount of time. But there are some doctors who have looked at this and said, actually, the six feet number is kind of arbitrary and that the real, you know, the, you can keep pretty darn safe according to three. And I'll give you a good example of a school district that was struggling with this. This is back in July. Uh, Newton, Massachusetts, school district was trying to figure out how to reopen the schools, how do you keep a safe distance. And the mayor, a woman named Ruth Ann Fuller, emailed a Harvard professor of medicine and the chief of infectious disease and said, look, we're leaning towards six feet of separation in our classrooms rather than the three feet that uh, the World Health Organization and other organizations are allowing. What do you think? And the reply from chief, Harvard's chief of infectious disease was pretty clear. Quote, I do think if people are masked, it is quite safe and much more practical to be at three feet. I think this is very viable for the middle and high schools and even late grade schools and would improve the feasibility. I suspect you may want to be at six feet for some of the very young children who cannot mask, unquote. And this uh, Harvard's chief of infectious disease referred them to the Harvard, had done a whole resource library on this and had the same conclusion. A distance of three feet torso to torso is likely low risk in asymptomatic individuals who are wearing masks. Now, Greg, you're ready for the punchline, right? Uh-huh. Who is this uh, head of Harvard's Harvard? Harvard's chief of infectious disease in July 2020 is Rochelle Walensky, who is now the director of the CDC. So back in July, she was telling her local school district three feet is fine. And she makes that caveat about younger kids and it's tougher to caveat. Look, I'm not, I'm not going to say the kindergartner teachers are going to have it easy if, if and when public schools come back. And I feel like every school district, like we should be able to work through these kinds of issues. We should be you know, like if you're a, a particularly uh, immunocompromised teacher and you're not been, you haven't been put to the front of the line like here in Virginia, then, then fine. We'll figure out a way. Maybe you have to continue virtual and we use a substitute or something. Well, there are particular cases we can work through the details on this but for your average adult healthy teacher they should be able to be in a classroom and and be just fine you know there was that big study of schools down in north carolina that had zero cases of student to teacher transmission so here we are rochelle walensky last summer is telling her local school three feet is fine and now she is the head of the cdc is saying to schools all across the country six feet is the required minimum Look, it's very clear that they are changing their recommendations based on political pressure, and it's really infuriating. And if you wonder why the average person doesn't always do as the CDC recommends, it's because of things like this, where they change their, their advice and try to pretend they never had any previous advice. Rochelle Walensky deserves to be called out before Congress and told to, told to account. Why are you telling people different things in, in summer than you did in winter? And if she, it's based on new information, fine. 
But there's no indication in any of these communications that the data has changed at all about three feet versus six feet and all the other factors that they're citing, including the, the HVAC systems and all the other excuses that the teachers unions are now grappling for. Come on, man. Trust the science. <laughs> Uh, this is, again, I think most teachers would rather be back in the classroom, especially if they can get fast-tracked to get the vaccination. I can't imagine a teacher who would prefer to be on Zoom for eight hours a day as opposed to having the kids in front of them buck the union. That's with a B. Uh, buck the union. And uh... <laughs> You sure? You sure? <laughs> My audio may have glitched there, Greg. Let's just settle on ucking the union and we'll, we'll, we'll kind of, you know, you, you decide where, how you want that to start. It's time to say no to the union. How's that? Is that a, is that a better way to put it? Uh, real quickly on Fauci, uh, we've had previous uh, COVID relief bills that have passed. Hundreds of billion dollars still haven't been spent on schools. And he says now schools really shouldn't open until this passes. And I assume he means the Biden version of, of the plan. So, I mean, Jim, politics is just infesting every bit of this. No, it's it's really kind of infuriating. And look, you don't have to look hard to hear all the the cases of teens being reported to emergency rooms, suicides up, all kinds of depression up like there's a cost to this get the kids interacting with each other again they we you know the 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 thing at the heart of this greg is that yeah we're in uncharted territory we, we've had a really bad virus thrown our way that we haven't seen anything like since 1919 and it's freaking us out with good reason but if the health policy the health policy experts plan was that for more than a year we're going to ask human beings to stay six feet or more away from every single individual outside of their households. It's just not going to work. That's just not how human beings are built. We needed a different and better plan for this. And now we're at the point like, and by the way, you could tell you can keep kids in virtual you know, in, in, in March 2020 and you got to late spring. Then you got to September. Right, well, now we're almost a year. Now that we're starting to really see the intense psychological effects and the physical effects and, and all kinds of other, you know, emotional, social, you know, and probably underlining in reds, educational effects of trying to learn from a screen for four to five hours a day. It doesn't work for far too many kids. Now we have to be, our tolerance for risk has to change, particularly, oh, by the way, over as I mentioned in the corner, we're now up to like 28 states that are um, vaccinating teachers. So if you've if you've got the opportunity to get vaccinated, teachers, you should take that opportunity. And if you're not, well, you know, once you've, you once you're vaccinated, there's no excuse whatsoever for not getting kids back into school. And I mean, like five days a week, hell, maybe six or seven days a week. <laughs> I mean, I know there's a lot of people out there that uh, would have said this a long time ago. But when you see people like uh, Walensky and Fauci doing a 180 because of the obvious political pressure, it once again goes back to what we were talking about with uh, different rules for different protests last summer. Why should we trust these people ever again? I don't. No, I don't assume any of us ever treated trust with them again. <laughs> Jim, quite a Monday. See you tomorrow. See you tomorrow, Greg. Jim Garrity, National Review. I'm Greg Columbus, Radio America. Thanks for being with us today. Don't forget about our friends over at Theragun theragun.com slash martini. Also, please subscribe to the Three Martini Lunch podcast. We're extraordinarily grateful for your five-star ratings and your kind reviews. Please get us on those home devices. All you have to say is play Three Martini Lunch podcast. Please follow us on Twitter. He's at Jim Garrity. I'm at Dateline underscore DC. Have a great Monday, and please join us Tuesday for the next Three Martini Lunch.
Hi, it's Dana Lash, host of The Dana Show. Every day, I'm here to keep you up to speed on the most important stories and info that you need to know in your very busy life. And if you're always on the go and you want to stay connected, just download our daily podcast and take it with you. It's a great way to get up to speed on what you need to know and what legacy media may not be telling you. Visit danaradio.com and click on the podcast link or subscribe at iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts.